Volume 2, Chapter 19 of Marius the Epicurean by Walter Pater. This recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 The Will as Vision. Paratum Cormeum Deus, Paratum Cormeum. The emperor demanded a senatorial decree for the erection of images in memory of the dead prince, that a golden one should be carried, together with the other images, in the great procession of the circus, and the addition of the child's name to the hymn of the Salian priests, and so, stifling private grief without further delay, set forth for the war. True kingship, as Plato, the old master of Aurelius, had understood it, was essentially of the nature of a service. If so be, you can discover a mode of life more desirable than being a king. For those who shall be kings, then, the true ideal of the state will become a possibility, but not otherwise. And if the life of beatic vision be indeed possible, if philosophy really concludes in an ecstasy affording full fruition to the entire nature of man, then for certain elect souls at least a mode of life will have been discovered more desirable than to be a king. By love or fear you might induce such persons to forego their privilege, to take upon them the distasteful task of governing other men, or even of leading them to victory in battle. But by the very conditions of its tenure their dominion would be wholly a ministry to others. They would have taken upon them the form of a servant. They would be reigning for the well-being of others rather than their own. The true king, the righteous king, would be St. Louis, exiling himself from the better land in its perfected company, so real a thing to him, definite and real as the pictured scenes of his psalter, to take part in or to arbitrate men's quarrels about the transitory appearances of things. In a lower degree, lower in proportion as the highest platonic dream is lower than any Christian vision, the true king would be Marcus Aurelius, drawn from the meditation of books to be the ruler of the Roman people in peace, and still more, in war. To Aurelius certainly the philosophic mood, the visions, however dim which this mood brought with it, were sufficiently pleasant to him, together with the endearments of his home, to make public rule nothing less than a sacrifice of himself according to Plato's requirement, now consummated in his setting forth for the campaign on the Danube. That it was such a sacrifice was to Marius visible fact, as he saw him ceremoniously lifted into the saddle amid all the pageantry of an imperial departure, yet with the air less of a sanguine and self-reliant leader than of one in some way or other already defeated. Through the fortune of the subsequent years, passing and repassing so inexplicably from side to side, the rumor of which reached him amid his own quiet studies, Marius seemed always to see that central figure, with its habitually dejected hue grown now to an expression of positive suffering, all the stranger from its contrast with the magnificent armor worn by the emperor on this occasion, as it had been worn by his predecessor Hadrian. Totus e argento contextus e oro, clothed in its gold and silver, dainty as that old divinely constructed armor of which Homer tells, but without its miraculous lightsomeness. He looked out baffled, laboring, moribund, a mere comfortless shadow taking part in some shadowy reproduction of the labors of Hercules, through those northern, mist-laden confines of the civilized world. 
It was as if the familiar soul which had been so friendly disposed towards him were actually departed to Hades, and when he read the conversations afterwards, though his judgment of them underwent no material change, it was nevertheless with the allowance we make for the dead. The memory of that suffering image, while it certainly strengthened his adhesion to what he could accept at all in the philosophy of Aurelius, added a strange pathos to what must seem the writer's mistakes. What, after all, had been the meaning of that incident, observed as so fortunate an omen long since, when the prince, then a little child much younger than was usual, had stood in the ceremony among the priests of Mars and flung his crown of flowers with the rest at the sacred image reclining on the pulvinar. The other crowns lodged themselves here or there, when, lo, the crown thrown by Aurelius, the youngest of them all, alighted upon the very brows of the god as if placed there by a careful hand. He was still young also, and on the day of his adoption by Antoninus Pius, he saw himself in a dream, with, as it were, shoulders of ivory like the images of the gods, and found them more capable than the shoulders of flesh. Yet he was now well nigh fifty years of age, setting out with two-thirds of life behind him upon a labor which would fill the remainder of it with anxious cares, a labor for which he had perhaps no capacity, and certainly no taste. That ancient suit of armor was almost the only object Aurelius now possessed from all those much-cherished articles of virtu collected by the Caesars, making the imperial residence like a magnificent museum. Not men alone were needed for the war, so that it became necessary to the great disgust alike of timid persons and of lovers of sport to arm the gladiators, but money also was lacking. Accordingly, at the sole motion of Aurelius himself, unwilling that the public burden should be further increased, especially on the part of the poor, the whole of the imperial ornaments and furniture, a sumptuous collection of gems formed by Hadrian with many works of the most famous painters and sculptors, even the precious ornaments of the emperor's chapel or lararium, and the wardrobe of the empress Faustina, who seems to have borne the loss without a murmur, were exposed for public auction. These treasures, said Aurelius, like all else that I possess, belong by right to the senate and people. Was it not a characteristic of the true kings in Plato that they had in their houses nothing they could call their own? Connoisseurs had a keen delight in the mere reading of the praetor's list of the property for sale. For two months the learned in these matters were daily occupied in the appraising of the embroidered hangings, the choice articles of personal use selected for preservation by each succeeding age, the great outlandish pearls from Hadrian's favorite cabinet, the marvelous plate lying safe behind the pretty iron wicker work of the shops in the goldsmith's quarter. Meantime, ordinary persons might have an interest in the inspection of objects which had been as daily companions to people so far above and remote from them, things so fine also in workmanship and material as to seem, with their antique and delicate air, a worthy survival of the grand bygone eras, like select thoughts or utterances embodying the very spirit of the vanished past. The town became more pensive than ever over old fashions. The welcome amusement of this last act of preparation for the great war being now over, all Rome seemed to settle down into a singular quiet, likely to last long as though bent only on watching from afar the languid, somewhat uneventful course of the contest itself. 
Marius took advantage of it as an opportunity for still closer study than of old, only now and then going out to one of his favorite spots on the Sabine or Alban hills for a quiet even greater than that of Rome in the country air. On one of these occasions, as if by favor of an invisible power withdrawing some unknown cause of dejection from around him, he enjoyed a quite unusual sense of self-possession, the possession of his own best and happiest self. After some gloomy thoughts overnight, he awoke under the full tide of the rising sun, himself full in his entire refreshment, of that almost religious appreciation of sleep, the graciousness of its influence on men's spirits which had made the old Greeks conceive of it as a god. It was like one of those old joyful wakings of childhood, now becoming rarer and rarer with him, and looked back upon with much regret as a measure of advancing age. In fact, the last bequest of this serene sleep had been a dream, in which, as once before, he overheard those he loved best pronouncing his name very pleasantly, as they passed through the rich light and shadow of a summer morning, along the pavement of a city. Ah, fairer far than Rome! In a moment, as he arose, a certain oppression of late setting very heavily upon him was lifted away, as though by some physical motion in the air. That flawless serenity, better than the most pleasurable excitement yet so easily ruffled by chance collusion even with the things and persons he had come to value as the greatest treasure in life, were to be wholly his today, he thought, as he rode towards Tiber, under the early sunshine, the marble of its villas glistening all the way before him on the hillside. And why could he not hold such serenity of spirit ever at command, he asked, expert as he was at last become in the art of setting the house of his thoughts in order. "'Tis in thy power to think as thou wilt," he repeated to himself. It was the most serviceable of all the lessons enforced on him by those imperial conversations. "'Tis in thy power to think as thy wilt." And were the cheerful, sociable, restorative beliefs of which he had there read so much, that bold adhesion, for instance, to the hypothesis of an eternal friend to man, just hidden behind the veil of a mechanical and material order, but only just behind it, ready perhaps even now to break through. Were they after all really a matter of choice, dependent on some deliberate act of volition on his part? Were they doctrines one might take for granted, generously take for granted and let on by them at first as but well-defined objects of hope, come at last into the region of a corresponding certitude of the intellect? It is the truth I seek, he had read, the truth by which no one, gray and depressing though it might seem, was ever really injured. And yet on the other hand, the imperial wayfarer he had been able to go along with so far on his intellectual pilgrimage, let fall many things concerning the practicability of a methodical and self-forced assent to certain principles or presuppositions one could not do without. Were there, as the expression one could not do without, seemed to hint beliefs without which life itself must be almost impossible, principles which had their sufficient ground of evidence in that very fact. Experience certainly taught that as regarding the sensible world he could attend or not, almost at will, to this or that color, this or that train of sounds, and the whole tumultuous concourse of color and sound. So it was also, for the well-trained intelligence, 
in regard to that hum of voices which besieged the inward no less than the outward ear. Might it not be otherwise with those various and competing hypotheses, the permissible hypotheses which in that open field for hypothesis, one's own actual ignorance of the origin and tendency of our being, present themselves so importunately, some of them with so emphatic a reiteration through all the mental changes of successive ages, might the will itself be an organ of knowledge, of vision. On this day truly no mysterious light, no irresistibly leading hand from afar reached him. Only the peculiarly tranquil influence of its first hour increased steadily upon him, in a manner with which, as he conceived the aspects of the place he was then visiting, had something to do. The air there, air supposed to possess the singular property of restoring the whiteness of ivory, was pure and thin. An even veil of lawn-like white cloud had now drawn over the sky, and under its broad shadowless light every hue and tone of time came out upon the yellow old temples, the elegant pillared circle of the shrine of the patronal civil, the houses seemingly of a piece with the ancient fundamental rock. Some half-conscious motive of poetic grace would appear to have determined their grouping, in part resisting, partly going along with the natural wildness and harshness of the place, its floods and precipices. An air of immense age possessed above all the vegetation around, a world of evergreen trees, the olives especially, older than how many generations of men's lives, fretted and twisted by the combining forces of life and death into every conceivable caprice of form. In the windless weather all seemed to be listening to the roar of the immemorial waterfall, plunging down so unassociably among those human habitations, and with a motion so unchanging from age to age as to count, even in this time-worn place, as an image of unalterable rest. Yet the clear sky all but broke, to let through the ray which was silently quickening everything in the late February afternoon, and the unseen violent refined itself through the air. It was as if the spirit of life in nature were but withholding any too precipitate revelation of itself in its slow, wise, maturing work. Through some accident to the trappings of his horse at the inn where he rested, Marius had an unexpected delay. He sat down in an olive garden, and all around him and within, still turning to reverie, the course of his own life hitherto seemed to withdraw itself into some other world, disparted from this spectacular point where he was now placed to survey it, like that distant road below along which he had travelled this morning across the Campania. Through a dreamy land he could see himself moving, as if in another life and like another person, through all his fortunes and misfortunes, passing from point to point, weeping, delighted, escaping from various dangers. That prospect brought him, first of all, an impulse of lively gratitude. It was as if he must look round for someone else to share his joy with, for someone to whom he might tell the thing for his own relief. Companionship, indeed familiarity with others gifted in this way or that, or at least pleasant to him, had been, through one or another long span of it, the chief delight of the journey. And it was only the resultant general sense of such familiarity diffused through his memory that in a while suggested the question whether there had not been, besides Flavian, besides Cornelius even, and amid the solitude he had, which in spite of ardent friendship perhaps loved best of all things, 
some other companion, an unfailing companion, ever at his side throughout, doubling his pleasure in the roses by the way, patient of his peevishness or depression, sympathetic above all with his grateful recognition, onward from his earliest days, of the fact that he was there at all. Must not the whole world around have faded away for him altogether had he been left for one moment really alone in it? In his deepest apparent solitude there had been rich entertainment. It was as if there were not one only, but two wayfarers side by side, visible there across the plain as he indulged in his fancy. A bird came and sang among the wattled hedge-roses, an animal feeding crept nearer, the child who kept it was gazing quietly, and the scene and the hour still conspiring, he passed from that mere fantasy of a self not himself, beside him in his coming and going, to those divinations of a living and companionable spirit at work in all things, of which he had become aware from time to time in his old philosophic readings, in Plato and others, last but not least in Aurelius. Through one reflection upon another he passed from such instinctive divinations to the thoughts which give them logical consistency, formulating at last, as the necessary exponent of our own and the world's life, that reasonable ideal to which the Old Testament gives the name of Creator, which for the philosophers of Greece is the eternal reason, and in the New Testament the Father of Men, even as one builds up from act and word and expression of the friend actually visible at one side an ideal of the spirit within him. In this peculiar and privileged hour, his bodily frame as he could recognize, although just then in the whole sum of its capacities, so entirely possessed by him, nay, actually his very self, was yet determined by a far-reaching system of material forces external to it, a thousand combining currents from earth and sky. Its seemingly active powers of apprehension were, in fact, but susceptibilities to influence. The perfection of its capacity might be said to depend on its passive surrender, as of a leaf on the wind, to the motions of the great stream of physical energy without it. And might not the intellectual frame also still more intimately himself as in truth it was, after the analogy of the bodily life, be a moment only? an impulse or series of impulses, a single process in an intellectual or spiritual system external to it, diffused through all time and place, that great stream of spiritual energy of which his own imperfect thoughts yesterday or today would be but the remote and therefore imperfect pulsations. It was the hypothesis, boldest though in reality the most conceivable of all hypotheses, which had dawned on the contemplations of the two opposed great masters of the old Greek thought alike. The world of ideas, existent only because, and in so far as they are known, as Plato conceived, the creative, incorruptible, informing mind supposed by Aristotle, so sober-minded, yet as regards this matter left something of a mystic after all. Might not this entire material world, the very scene around him, the immemorial rocks, the firm marble, the olive gardens, the falling water, be themselves but reflections in, or a creation of, that one indefectible mind wherein he too became conscious for an hour, a day for so many years. Upon what other hypothesis could he so well understand the persistency of all these things? For his own intermittent consciousness of them, 
for the intermittent consciousness of so many generations fleeting away one after another. It was easier to conceive of the material fabric of things as but an element in a world of thought, as a thought in a mind, than of mind as an element or accident or passing condition in a world of matter, because mind was really nearer to himself. It was an explanation of what was less known by what was known better. The purely material world, that close, impassable prison wall, seemed just then the unreal thing to be actually dissolving away all around him, and he felt a quiet hope, a quiet joy dawning faintly in the dawning of this doctrine upon him as a really credible opinion. It was like the break of day over some vast prospect with the new city, as it were, some celestial new Rome in the midst of it. That divine companion figured no longer as but an occasional wayfarer beside him, but rather as the unfailing assistant without whose inspiration and concurrence he could not breathe or see, instrumenting his bodily senses, rounding, supporting his imperfect thoughts. How often had the thought of their brevity spoiled for him the most natural pleasures of life, confusing even his present sense of them by the suggestion of disease, of death, of a coming end in everything. How had he longed sometimes that there were indeed one to whose boundless power of memory he could commit his own most fortunate moments, his admiration, his love, ay, the very sorrows of which he could not bear quite to lose the sense, one strong to retain them even though he forgot, in whose more vigorous consciousness they might subsist forever, beyond that mere quickening of the capacity which was all that remained of them in himself. Oh, that they might live before thee! Today, at least, in the peculiar clearness of one privileged hour, he seemed to have apprehended that in which the experiences he valued most might find one by one an abiding place. And again the resultant sense of companionship, of a person beside him, evoked the faculty of conscience, of conscience as of old and when he had been at his best, in the form not of fear, nor of self-reproach even, but of a certain lively gratitude. Himself, his sensations and ideas never fell again precisely into focus as on that day, yet he was the richer by its experience. But for once only to have come under the power of that peculiar mood, to have felt the train of reflections which belonged to it really forcible and conclusive, to have been led by them to a conclusion, to have apprehended the great ideal so palpably that it defined personal gratitude in the sense of a friendly hand laid upon him amid the shadows of the world, left this one particular hour a marked point in life, never to be forgotten. It gave him a definitely ascertained measure of his moral or intellectual need, of the demand his soul must make upon the powers whatsoever they might be, which had brought him as he was into the world at all. And again, would he be faithful to himself, to his own habits of mind, his leading suppositions, if he did but remain just there? Must not all that remained of life be but a search for the equivalent of that ideal among so-called actual things, a gathering together of every trace or token of it, which his actual experience might present? End of chapter 19 Recording by Philip Gould